In keeping with our nation's better mood post-election 08, we're again looking to have some fun. Last week, we talked to The Onion. Today, we sit down to chat with another editor from another source we love to quote for your amusement. He's Uncle John himself from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. This entertaining and informative collection of books goes back for years. And this fall, the 21st volume titled Uncle John's Unsinkable Bathroom Reader is out. Gordon Uncle John Javna has joined us before, and we're happy to have him come aboard thrice. Uncle John, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much. It's great to be back with you. We don't get to say thrice very often, so that's kind of good. <laughs> that's right. That's, you get a high marks just for using that word. <laughs> How old is the readers, the Bathroom Readers series at this point? 20, 21 years. Really? Yeah, 21 years. We started back in 1987. One, every year, a new edition. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, and past 10 years we've done a, a few additional titles, more than just one a year, but uh, so we're up to about I don't know, 40 or 50 titles in the Bathroom Reader series, but uh, 21 years of going, and going strong. Oh, that? see, that's a bathroom pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to describe the series and, and was having some trouble summarizing. So I thought I'd ask you, how, how do you give a thumbnail summary for these books? Well, um, what they are is a compilation of short, quippy articles on a variety of topics. Anything that's family-rated. We, we'll cover any topic from uh, uh, sports and, and entertainment, music, TV, uh, to politics, history, in even science, and uh, we like you know we like to keep our articles short because it is written for the bathroom, and you don't want to be in there forever uh, reading the end of the uh, <laughs> finding out what happened at the end of the story. But uh, uh, other than that, anything anything goes, and we like to have fun with this stuff. And I, I do want to start off with a warning for our listeners: you do try to make the book uh, you know the small portions to be read you know a short period of time. But one can sort of get absorbed and remain sitting longer than advisable. Last week I made that mistake. I set <laughs> off to go for a run shortly afterwards and cramped my hamstring oh. where it touches the toilet seat. So you do have to be careful I'm with these so books. I'm so sorry. I wish I could take responsibility for it, but I can't. You shouldn't have sat that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you won't be contacted by my lawyers, so don't worry. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> okay. I got the, my bathroom attorney uh, ready, ready to go. Now, odd facts are prominent in these books. You guys are always amazing me. There's something I thought I, I probably should have known. Case in point, in the beginning of the book, you mentioned the Oakland Raiders logo. I grew yeah. up in the Bay Area. I remember when the Raiders played in Frank Yule Field, and that, that pirate face goes way back for me. Turns out it was modeled after an actor, not a pirate. Yeah, it was modeled after Randolph Scott, who is the uh, a Western, a hero of Western movies from the uh, 40s and 50s. I did not. I just didn't know. It just it just didn't remind me of Randolph Scott. It's just amazing to know that. Yeah, uh, we love those things. I mean, the NBA logo was modeled after a real player, huh. and that would be Jerry West. They they never stop. Yeah, it's it, and those those kinds of things are fun. Uh, yeah, we have uh, we have some other sports. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but uh, mm -hmm. so we have some other sports stories in here, including uh, the best sports deal of all time. Well, we think it's the best sports deal of all time, in which. Two fellows uh, bought a, a failing ABA, American Basketball Association, team in 1974 because they figured the uh, NBA was going to merge with them, uh, and they were right. It took two, two more years, but in 1976, the NBA and the ABA did merge, except they didn't accept all the teams. They only took four of the six teams, and one of the two that they did not want was this team called the Spirits of St. Louis. And uh, so they, they offered to buy out the team. It, they had spent a uh, million dollars buying it, and then they beefed it up with some players like Moses Malone and some other 
uh, great, so uh, they refused to take the offer of $3.3 million. Instead, they traded it for a share of the TV broadcast royalties <laughs> for those the four ABA teams that were accepted into the NBA. And at that time, in 1976, the NBA on TV wasn't that popular. Yeah. But it is now. And these guys held on to those rights, and they have made so far $180 million on their million-dollar investment. And it's scheduled to go another 10 years or so. They, they expect to make another $130 million over the next 10. So pretty good. Yeah, I think you describe it as not just one of the best sports deals ever, as one of the best business deals <laughs> ever. It might be. Very yeah. Well, you, you, you do some scientific studies in this, in this edition. I have to cite one because I was just quite taken by it. You note that in 2005... Spanish researchers discovered that rats have difficulty telling the difference between Japanese spoken backwards and Dutch spoken backwards. <laughs> yeah, and to think some people say mankind's not progressing. Yes, here, here's one. A cog- cognitive psychologist Daniel Oppenheimer of Princeton wrote a study arguing that short, simple words make writers seem more intelligent than long words do. Uh, the name of Oppenheimer's study was Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilized Irrespective of Necessity. <laughs> yes, I was hoping you'd cite that one. <laughs> uh, you got a section on pronunciation. You often have things like that in, in these books, and and I was stunned to know that. Uh, well, I knew that fort it's fort, not forte, more properly, but I did not know that it was more properly quasi, not quasi. Um. Yeah, and it's and it's more properly gala than gala. It's more properly prelude. Excuse me, it's prelude, not prelude. And, of course, the classic, it's either, not either. Okay. And we have to... And I, I, have to I have to say, though, that two things. First of all, I, we don't like to preach to people. If you say these words another way, it's fine. Uh, a lot of these words have, have two uh, pronunciations or more, and, you know, language changes all the time. So uh, we're not being critical of anybody who pronounces it either. And that's sort of either. Uh, it's just that, the, the, according to dictionaries, that that is the preferred pronunciation. Well, then this this allows me to, to do one that that uh, you know with that I need to clarify. Uh, my sources tell me that it, the seventh planet really is properly named Uranus, not Uranus. Yes, but Uranus is so much funnier. <laughs> Indeed. You, you got a section on city names. San Francisco being called Baghdad by, by the Bay. That sort of makes a guy like me nostalgic for the late, great columnist Herb Cain. He used to call it that. I didn't know that Seattle got the Emerald City from a contest. And, and the Big Easy, New Orleans. I'm not sure how that one came about. Uh, when neither am I. Especially since I'm not looking at that page. I'm looking <laughs> at this five, 545 pages. I can never remember everything on every page. But I can remember an inspiration. Uh, well, first of all, let me ask you a, a, a uh, trivia question. Yeah. Only one movie character is on the American Film Institute's list of 50 greatest villains and 50 greatest heroes. Who is the character? Well, having read your book, I, I believe I know that would be the Terminator. That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> uh, so we found it fascinating that the, the um, villain in the second Terminator movie that sort of liquidy robot that James Cameron, the director, got the inspiration for that from uh, eating a hot fudge sundae. <laughs> makes perfect sense. If you know yeah. the movie, it makes yeah. perfect sense. But uh, uh, how, how things are that obvious, uh, it always astonishes. And speaking of films, you talk about a, you have a section called Lost Arts. It's kind of, it makes one very sad to learn the fate of many pre-1940 movie films. 
that are lost, uh, including uh, one of Shakespeare, or a couple of Shakespeare's plays, and uh, um, and uh, tons and tons of movies. Yeah, they were either burned, destroyed, uh, uh, or or lost. And a lot of the really early films were made of uh, uh, nitrates that that uh, actually. Um, disintegrate so they're all they're all, all gone yeah um, every it, once in a while they find something you know they find and there were fires in film vaults and things like that so that, that really destroyed uh, and they had and plus uh, they thought the movie studios thought that that uh, you know they were only doing it for to make money when they came out they had no idea that there would be ever be a TV or, or broadcast uh, possibilities so they, they didn't care they let them deteriorate or and or in some cases, they actually threw them away. Lots of old TV shows as well. Yeah. Um, the the, the um, first several years of there's only a handful of, of Jeopardy episodes uh, available with uh, Art, Art Fleming, Fleming. Yeah. Because they the videotape was so expensive that they just recorded over it. They did that with a lot of the the early Tonight shows, the early Johnny Carson Tonight shows, and and many more. I understand that's what Johnny went ballistic when he first realized that, that he put that in his contract in the future they would retain them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It surprised me, too. Apparently, Emil Jannings' performance, Academy Award-winning performance, is lost to history, the only one that uh, that, that is, because it yeah. was on nitrate stock. It was on nitrate stock, yeah. Quite, yeah. A, quite a trivia question there. Let's see what else is in this book. Story of the Comstock Load. Yeah, I want that. You know, you're, we're on the same page. I wanted to ask about that. Fascinating story about uh, about the great silver mine in Nevada. Yeah, and it's it's where Nevada gets its uh, name. Actually, uh, it's it's an incredible silver strike. It started when two fellows. Uh, let's see if I can remember their names. Um, <laughs> James Old Virginia Finney <laughs> was his name. He was uh, tr- going to the California Gold Rush, and uh, couldn't get over the Sierra Nevadas because of I guess he was snowed in. And uh, he's noticed some yellow dirt where he was, uh, so he started digging and found gold. Um, he sold the uh, his sh- his share to the, of the mine, and some other miners came in and uh, down the road, and uh, they started digging. They found more gold, and they kept digging gold out. And finally, uh, and they actually they sold their shares to to a fellow named Comstock, which is where the where the Comstock load gets its name. But anyway, what I found most interesting with the story is that they uh, brought some some of the ore to be assayed, and uh, they found, I think they were told that the, the, the it was, there was probably like uh, $1,000 worth of gold per ton, but $5,000 worth of silver per ton. And they had no idea. They just thought it was this blue dirt that was clogging up their uh, their equipment. <laughs> the so, waste, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, Virginia City is named after Old Virginia. Wow. The guy who originally... Uh, discovered the mine. Well, let's, let's, let's continue to mine this topic, uh, because there's two other aspects of it I love, and I think you put a five-part series on this in there. Apparently Comstock, who it's named after, shows up, notices these guys digging, and realizes they've got a big find, and then tells them this cock-and-bull story about, you know, he's put in for uh, ownership of the land as a farm, and they're now operating, they're actually trespassing on his farm, but if they'll give him a share of the silver mine, he'll let him stay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> they, they were uh, survivalists of a different kind. By the way, uh, Comstock's nickname was Old Pancake. Do we, do we know, know why? We don't know I, why. 
I have always find that those kind of things interesting or fascinating anyway, if not interesting. Here's the best part, though. I mean, I love this. May be the best part of the whole book. You're talking about the Comstock mine, and you're explaining how these guys have the world's richest silver mine. They're making a fortune on it, but they're making a bigger fortune on it with stock manipulations yeah. because they can send the price up or down depending on how the, how they mine the silver, and by short selling and other tricks, they're able to fleece investors. Right, and that, that's pretty timely. Uh, I mean, with all, I mean, it's not—it's not what's happening in the market today, but it gives you an, an idea of what can happen and what did happen. In fact, they just manipulated the price and had nothing to do with how much how much uh, uh, gold was in the ground or, or silver was in the ground. It had to do with how they uh, sent the news in and uh, and as you say, selling short. People could make a fortune when there was no silver coming in, and they could lose a fortune when the when the mine was doing well. It was—it's pretty interesting story. Yes, disturbingly like uh, the headlines of today. You have a chapter on doing a Ratner. What, what is that? Uh, that's making an incredible business blunder. Uh, and uh, it comes from a fellow in Canada, if I remember correctly, uh, named Ratner. Oh, no, it's in England. I'm sorry, it's in England. He owned a jewelry uh, uh, <laughs> uh, chain of jewelry stores. And um, at a uh, speech in 1991, he was giving a speech to the... Um, Institute of Directors, which is a kind of CEO think tank, and he said, uh, we do cut glass sherry decanters complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray, all for four four ninety-five of it's in pounds, uh, four pounds or five pounds. And people say, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. <laughs> now, he thought he was just saying it to the room. Uh, he didn't think there was any any media around, but there was, and it was reported in the in the media, and um, he ruined his company. He ruined the brand name so that uh, within less than a year, it went from being worth a billion pounds to half a billion pounds, and he was fired, and the company had to change its name. I found that interesting. (laughs) It was so bad that they had to change the name to something else. And uh, now whenever whenever a a CEO or somebody big in the company says something that sort of shoots himself in the foot, business people say he was doing a Ratner. I got a trivia item, world-class trivia item. I'd always heard, I think a lot of us had, that Bob Dylan renamed himself after the poet Dylan Thomas. The truth is much more quirky. Yes, he named himself after uh, Marshall Dylan. Apparently he had an <laughs> uncle named uh, Dylan uh, also, but, but he named himself after Marshall Matt Dylan in, in Gunsmoke. I love yeah, I don't that. know. You know, <laughs> we find this information, and I, I have to, sometimes have to scratch my head and say, well, yeah, but uh, t- 30 years ago, uh, naming himself after Dylan Thomas was the, was the real fact. But this is apparently so. We found it many si- cited in many sources. Smartly done, sir. Thank you. Um, I, I, I do have a question for you. And you have a, a stall of fame section. And you know you weren't referring to Larry Craig. <laughs> you, you mentioned that a woman determined... Although we do, ha- we do have a mention of Larry Craig in yes. the book. Because that bathroom in the Minneapolis airport is now a tourist site. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta people, love it. Uh, people say, I have heard that there's a sign, but it's it's. Uh, I think it's right next to the Burger King, in the airport. <laughs> Good lord! I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, no, you. I, no, that's worth. It's a worthy, uh, worthy uh, detour. You, you mentioned though that a woman determined at some point that toilet paper back to 580 A.D. And you said, well, we're not sure where she came up with that, but it did set me wondering. Do we know when the use of toilet paper did start? Uh, not really. Um, we know manufactured toilet paper started in the uh, late 1800s, um, but before that, 
whatever kind of paper there might have been, and in some cases, sheep's wool. They <laughs> used uh, clamshells in the old, olden, olden, olden days. They, they used, and of course, you know, leaves or whatever. I don't know the the uh, exact origin of. Uh, let's just say, how would somebody know that toilet paper went back that far? So. Yeah. Well, and this one we're going to go out on a limb on, I think, but I'm a medical doctor. You're an expert in the field, so I think we have to go here. We have to make a, make a, a foray into this. The New Scientist magazine, no less, had a, a comment about answering nature's call uh, in their, their November 11th issue. And they had a stat that is sort of hair-raising. They noted that the average American wipes with a staggering 57 sheets a day, yet most Americans, most men anyway, have fecal debris on their undergarments. <laughs> any any comment, sir? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't touch that one either. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got some quick... I guess 56 is not enough. I, uh, I, I guess not. I guess not. Um, the best parts of the book, I think some of the quickies, you had a brief item about a 24-year-old Moscow man stole a car from a repair shop. Didn't turn out so well for him. He did not know this, but it was there to have the brakes repaired. <laughs> <laughs> and he could not stop when... When he was chased. <laughs> and, and you had a section called The Complaint Desk, and I thought you might want to tell us about the English scratch-off lottery called Cool Cash that kind of ran into problems. My memory fails me. Okay, well, I'll, I'll help you out. It turned out that uh, you, you, you won the award if the temperature you had was higher than the one that was on, on the card once you scratched it off, but people were having trouble with negative temperatures. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, they didn't, they... <laughs> didn't know. They didn't know how to read a thermometer. Yeah. Yeah. Negative six is less than negative five. Yeah. Yeah. Sad indeed. Um, Very sad, but funny. Thank, thank goodness. People <laughs> ask us, "Are you ever going to run out of things to write uh, about or to include?" And the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, there, uh, another uh, uh, episode of Dumb Crooks. Uh, I couldn't believe this. Somebody saw a little uh, uh, electronic device on somebody's. Uh, doorstep, so they they stole it. Uh, it was about the about the size of a brick, and they stole it without knowing what it was. They just figured it must be worth something. Well, you know what it was? It was a GPS locator. <laughs> I mean, didn't take the cops very long to find that person. No, I guess not. And uh, speaking of high tech, Google Earth, amazing tool. We've all I think sort of taken a look at it by now. But I loved your story of the Milner family of Dorset, England. They were puzzled looking at Google Earth about an object they saw on their front lawn. Yes, I think it was their dog. It was a, they thought it was a big blob. Uh -huh. they, they couldn't tell what it was. Do I have the story correctly? Well, it was actually something left behind by their dog. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> which, which, as you guys note with some incredulity, visible from space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else do we have in this book? Oh, we have wonderful comics uh like the superman versus muhammad ali yes where clark kent interviews ali while he's teaching a bunch of kids to play basketball and suddenly an evil alien invades earth challenging superman to a death match but ali wants to be the one to battle the alien and defend the earth so he challenges superman to a fight of course ali's corner man disguises himself as superman and fights and loses to ali so the real superman never uh, never has to beat up ali and he goes on to kill the alien so you know, oh, and, you, and I mentioned GPS. Here's another great one. Yeah. Uh, a California man named Bo Bai lost his rental car in Bedford Hills, New York. So uh, uh, he got lost. I said he lost. No, he got lost in his rental car. His GPS system told him to take a right, and he <laughs> did, and it went right onto a train tracks as the commuter train was speeding toward him. 
<laughs> he couldn't get off the tracks because the tires were stuck. So he had to jump out of the car. He starts waving to the to the train to stop, but it didn't. Uh-huh. And and uh, it totaled the car. The collision totaled the car and and uh, got about ten thousand New Yorkers to work late. Yes, and, and I guess a seventy-year-old man was told at one point when he missed a turn off to make a U-turn immediately, which he did in a tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that that didn't pan out. I have a feeling that that you, GPS tales are going to be uh, uh, on the uh, on the news for some time. It's funny funny stories about GPS. Yeah, I'll wager the twenty second edition is going to have a few of those in there. Yeah, exactly. We got time for a couple more items. I think. Um, let's see. You have a chapter on unlikely benefactors and this incredible story about how IKEA is technically owned by a charity. Oh yeah. And, and that the, tell us a little bit about that one. Let's see if I remember correctly. He, he, uh, the guy who started it, uh, donated everything to a charity, at, but he still gets all the money. He still gets all the profits. I can't remember what the uh, what the chain is, but he he just uh, he just did it completely as a tax dodge. They got this, yeah, incredibly uh, well endowed charity, but which I guess, I guess prevents them against hostile takeovers in some yeah. way. It protects him, but it also protect, protects him against hostile takeovers, but it also protects him against having to pay taxes. <laughs> I think which, that's... as we know in Sweden, is very expensive. Yes, indeed. We have um, the uh, story of the, the Magna Carta. If you're a history buff, you yeah. may know something about the Magna Carta. It's one of those things we've all heard about. And uh, what we're told often is that it is uh, the precursor to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but it turns out that the Magna Carta, well, it is a very important document. It's not because it gives uh, common people the right to anything. In fact, it's specifically for nobles. But what it does do is it, it, it's the first time in history that the powers of a monarch were ever limited by a document. So it's, but it's a pretty fascinating story. And the place uh, where it was signed is still, it's still there. And there's even a, a few copies of the Magna Carta still in existence. That, that is a good section. Uh, I guess for me, my favorite caption of the whole book, done in sort of Esquire dubious achievements of the year style, you discuss the malfunction of a toilet on the International Space Station with the headline, Houston, we have a really big problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently a fan in the urinal malfunctioned, and they had to sort of jury-rig a system that took 10 minutes to flush. But I guess you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know, you have to make, make do with what you have. Yeah, there's, there's uh, lots of great stuff in this book, including the great Lego spill. Yeah, we did a thing about, uh, about uh, things that were, that were lost at sea, cargo that was lost at sea, including uh, 80,000 Nike sneakers yeah. washed out to sea. Yeah. And they were still wearable. So people, uh, people in Washington start, started collecting them when they washed up on the shore, and uh, they had serial numbers, so they could match the left and right pairs, and there was even uh, meet and match days uh, organized by people to swap shoes. So people got 40,000 pairs of sneakers for free because they weren't saleable any longer. I love it. The whole book is filled with such such interesting facts. And unfortunately, we're out of time. So, you know, again, it's been, as always, a great deal of fun. Uh, the book is Uncle John's Unsinkable Bathroom Reader, the 21st edition. Uncle John's Unsinkable Bathroom Reader makes a fantastic... Uh, uh, Christmas gift. You, um, everybody knows somebody who stays in the bathroom too long, but in addition to that, uh, it lasts a long time, and we get letters from people telling us that their kids did well on the SATs and they owe it all to us. Or, <laughs> uh, I swear that's true. Or, or that uh, the English teachers who say that they, that, uh, that for unruly kids, they even, they can't read well, and they can read this. They, it, it really uh, teaches people to, uh, 
to enjoy reading because there's a lot to enjoy in this book. I have no doubt that's a true story. No, it is true. Oh, and it's not it's not isolated. We get lots of yeah. letters like that. Well, Uncle John, thanks for speaking with us uh, thrice, and we hope to, I don't know what the, 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 I don't know how to say the fourth time, but I hope there'll be one. Quatrice. <laughs> <laughs> Quatrice. Well, I, I, I don't so know. too. It was great to be with you again. All right. 